0: dunker punks. Have you ever thought very hard about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness? That line is in Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's part of the Beatitudes, that part of the sermon where Jesus starts listing people who are blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says, for they will be filled. It's probably important to know that the word righteousness in Jesus' sermon doesn't mean good behavior or being particularly pious. In Jesus' sermon and in the witness of Scripture as a whole, righteousness is what we would call justice. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for justice? And why are we blessed if we do it? This episode of the podcast features a sermon by Pastor Matt Riddle from the Arlington Church of the Brethren. He preached a sermon in his congregation during Black History Month, and it's a way of reminding us what hungering for justice might look like, how we might hope that the things that cause us to mourn aren't where the story is.
1: Hey there, Dunker Punks. Pastor Matt Riddle here with the Arlington Church of the Brethren. I record this podcast at a house in Arlington, Virginia, maybe five miles as the crow would fly from this house to the white house. I'm also located in the United States and I happen to be white. These are all facts that are unique to me and run in the background of my voice as I share with you these stories today. I'll speaking about a history that is not mine, but it's important to tell stories from origins, from sources other than just our own. And our first story today begins centuries ago in Britain, where it might not surprise you to learn that trespassing was a crime. In Britain, then, the moment you even stepped on someone else's property, you had committed a serious crime, and if you poached any wildlife. Even if by accident on someone else's property, you could be punished by the worst thing they could imagine for you. They would send you away from Britain, (laughs) all the way across an ocean to what they called the colonies, perhaps even Virginia, where I live now. It's very sensible then that some of the first laws our young nation passed was to say, Trespassing is fine. Everyone go ahead and trespass. It is legal. Does it surprise you to learn that in our country's earliest days, trespassing was not stigmatized and it was even an important facet of society. For example, during the time of chattel slavery, this is the way that enslaved people could feed themselves foraging and hunting off the land, they could grow their own gardens, grab berries, hunt game, all on land they did not own themselves. This was to supplement the scant food provided by the slave owners so that they could eat so that they could live. This is how the law of the land went in regards to trespassing. Until that is, slavery was abolished. Formerly enslaved people were able to refuse work because they could legally both live and eat off land that they didn't own. And so trespassing was made a crime, specifically and explicitly to make the formerly enslaved once again dependent upon white business and landowners. In fact, many laws were passed in those early days after slavery was abolished and through the early 20th century and beyond, that specifically tried to match our country as closely as possible to the slavery era. Many specifically trying to take advantage of the precise wording of the constitutional amendment that banned the practice of chattel slavery, the 13th amendment. I will read the beginning of it for you. Quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Except as a punishment for a crime. The 13th Amendment provided that slavery or involuntary servitude was still legal if that person had first been convicted of a crime. So the next obvious step, is to make laws that criminalize portions of life in the black communities, like trespassing or loitering, you know, loitering, the general act of hanging out in a public area. Another law with roots in explicit racism for its vagueness, allowed law enforcement to target people of color and arrest them of a crime. Remember that slavery then is legal for those convicted of crimes. Heck, one state's law has even said that after a person's first arrest for loitering, they could be sold to the highest bidder for a year of labor. Friends, this is legal slavery. For that 13th amendment that banned one type of slavery allowed For another. There were many laws that were passed in this manner, though it was not limited to those early days after slavery was abolished. Even as late as the mid 1950s, explicit and vocal racism was a winning strategy for some politicians. Now, this shifts right around the time of the Civil Rights era. See, people want to think of themselves as decent people, good people, and culture was changing just enough, and the civil rights movement is going on, and there are cameras on it, and with the cameras, the nightly news, and even international eyes, and people began to get discomforted by the explicit and named aspects of racism. See, we want to think that we're good people. So enter President Nixon, who leads the charge for a new direction, though many politicians of course follow it. President Nixon, quote, emphasize that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. A direct quote from Nixon aide and advisor H.R. Haldeman. See, the polling data on the overt racism had slipped to just below 50%. So to win elections, politicians needed to learn to appeal to the middle, who had grown uncomfortable with, as we say now, saying the quiet part out loud. But they also needed to maintain support from the maybe 49% of people who were more comfortable with the overt racism or some racism mixed in government maybe still. So Nixon hits this strategy hard, inventing out of thin air this message where he talks about law and he talks about order. We need order in the streets, he says, and laws to be followed. And additionally, he says, we need to crack down on drugs. A third party candidate ran in that election on explicit racial discrimination. He won 10 million votes. Not enough to win. We know, of course, Nixon won that presidency with his Southern strategy, but notably those two candidates combined for 57% of votes, a majority, that, my friends, is how you can win an election. On Nixon's law and order message, the messaging the war on drugs came to use later, a close aide to Nixon, John Ehrlichman says this, quote, you want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968, the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and the black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war, or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana, and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. This myth about drugs was invented out of thin air and to solve a problem that no one thought existed despite Nixon's successful campaign and usage of the drug rhetoric. Political polling on the issue of drugs remained as low as 2% into the mid 1970s. 2%. By 1989 that same issue was polling at 64%. By 1994, President Bill Clinton names and doubles down on the war on drugs in his State of the Union of Dress, receiving a standing ovation and thunderous applause from both sides of the aisle. During his presidency, $19 billion was added to the budget for prisons and prison creation. And $17 billion in funding was cut from public housing projects. Friends, we paid for the prisons by cutting the funds to the communities that needed them most, almost as if in a way to help ensure the pipeline to those prisons remained full. Mind you that the laws, these laws that regulated the war on dregs had to be and were, on one hand, colorblind. On the letter of the law, strictly colorblind. But on the other, they were specifically designed to target people in communities of color. Remember Nixon's aide mentioned tying cocaine to black communities? And that's exactly what politicians later wrote into law. The so-called Fair Sentencing Act of 1986, enshrined sentencing disparities for drug offenses, differentiating between the kind of cocaine that white people statistically bought more often versus black people bought more often, with mandatory minimum sentences being up to 100 times more strict in communities of color. See, it's not that white people didn't use drugs Statistically, it's identical, but they haven't been legislated and policed against as harshly. We don't need to look any farther for this than that the cocaine epidemic was wrought mostly upon communities of color and was treated as a matter for law enforcement with mass arrests. While the opioid epidemic was wrought more upon white communities, and was treated more compassionately as a mental health debate. Imagine if both had been treated that way. Let's take two hypothetical communities, both at one point healthy. One we leave alone and give the tools it needs to thrive. And the other, we systematically over time strip the wealth out of the community. We systematically make affordable housing uh, harder and harder to find and home ownership harder to get, leaving more people to rent apartments in buildings owned by managers who don't live in the community. We systematically make laws that remove fathers and parents and friends out of the community and put them in prison. And then we take what little funding that community has and we cut it so that we can take even more fathers and parents and friends out of that community. We do this for years. We do this for generations. What do you think the oppressed community will look like all those years and generations later? How might it look differently than the one which was given the tools it needed to thrive? What tools might it need in order to start thriving? would it be enough to simply remove the systemic oppression? Which community do you think would be in the nightly news more often? And what kind of stories would they be? And if we think about the crime statistics being reported about those two communities differently, we should compassionately remember the history of systemic oppression wrought upon the community. But we do even better. We would do so well to remember the discussion of this podcast, right? Our very legal system that helps create those crime statistics has been designed and does continue to affect people and communities of color disproportionately. And to what effect? To what effect? In the year 1972, there are 200,000 inmates in prison. Now there are over 2 million In 2018, black people accounted for roughly 12% of the total population, but a third of the prison population. I read that statistic in an article bragging about how rates of imprisonment had fallen significantly from 2006. In Washington, D.C. today, remember, this is my backyard, maybe five miles from where I live. In Washington, D.C. today, 75% of its black residents will see prison time at some point in their life. 75%. I just read an article from the Washington Post like two weeks ago noting that while Washington DC moves towards the legalization of marijuana, it's currently profiting off of the tax from sales. Some marijuana arrests are still made most. The vast majority of those arrests are people of color. Friends in the poorest areas of this country. The rate of imprisonment for black people can go as high as a hundred percent today. Felony convictions, drug convictions, remember, all but ensure a person will struggle for employment for the rest of their life. That their family will be more likely to struggle with money, struggle with the trauma of having missed time with a brother or father or loved one that a growing portion of our population is ineligible to vote, to change these systems? Friends, we need to struggle through this, to figure out what to do with this information, what to do with how this information makes us feel. In a moment, we'll look through a biblical model of response found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but let me just say this clearly right now. There is no need for anyone listening this to feel shame. There is no need for shame or guilt. We should resist the temptation to move on like we didn't learn it, but we need to realize that racism isn't about what's in our hearts just like it isn't about separating the political left from the right even further. Whatever party you're a part of is not the innocent one, and the other one isn't the guilty one. If you're even a part of any party, we need to realize that the problem of racism is about more than what's in our hearts. It's about more than what's in our hearts. It's about realizing that systemic racism is in the air we breathe. It's about realizing that the laws in their strictest sense may be colorblind, but they have been designed to target communities and people of color. Racism is systemic. And it's possible for very good people, well-intentioned, good-hearted people to continue systemic racism just by liking the status quo. If a good person is in charge of a racist system, it doesn't matter how good that person tries to be, that system is still broken and racist. We should all desire a change. Our love for ourselves should drive us to desire a change. Our love for someone who isn't ourselves should drive us to desire a change. For whether we are black or white or brown, these systems hurt us. Because systems designed to target one over another hurt everyone. These systems don't care who their victims are. Everyone is negatively affected. In our country's system of mass incarceration, the white population is locked up twice as much as in other developed countries. And black people are locked up at a rate five times higher. We should all feel invested in changing the status quo of how things have been done before. As I've written and reflected on all this, I feel called out of my sort of us versus them model for thinking about racism. As someone who is white, I even feel called out of any sense of like a good white person versus bad white person model we good political party, bad political party. The problem is the systems. The problem is the institutions. No one listening to this podcast is to blame. There is no blame. There is no shame. There is no guilt. We're just asked to be honest about the systems. Can we just talk about it? and, importantly, to work towards dismantling it for the next generation. Doesn't learning about all this make you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Can you feel it? Do you want a better tomorrow? I am hungering and thirsting for a change, for something different. As we think about learning these things, sitting with the things that we already know, the pain of others, the pain we've witnessed for ourselves, we we need a model of how to wrestle through our response to this, for how it makes us feel. And uh, there's a biblical model of how uh, to do that and how to elicit that change. It's right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, found in the earliest verses of Matthew chapter 5 called the Beatitudes. It begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I like the parallel verse in Luke for this one, which reads, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So if we are poor ourselves or with the poor in our spirit, we will hear these stories with an openness, an openness of mind, an openness of heart. And these stories, much like the one shared in this podcast, might and maybe should break our hearts for the conditions that have led people there. Which is why we hear in the next beatitude, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. While we are hearing so many stories of hardship, stories about systemic racism, we might be brought to a place of mourning. And we should, we need to mourn it. However, while we are mourning, we must resist a temptation to allow our hearts or our ears to grow hard and deaf. So verse 5 reminds us saying quote Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. If we stay with the poor in spirit stay mourning over what we hear stay soft hearted. We might naturally arrive at the place I feel so strongly about in this moment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Friends, how can we hear the stories of today and do anything other than hunger for a change? How can we hear the stories of today and do anything other than thirst For a change. Don't you hunger and thirst for a better tomorrow? Don't you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I am hungering and thirsting for justice. Are you with me? And so, here the caution of this next Beatitude Blessed are the merciful. Friends, stay merciful. We are warned from letting our pursuits be tainted by creating further division or further violence. Our motives must remain pure. In the civil rights era, when Martin Luther King Jr. and his colleagues prepared for direct action campaigns, the community began with a time of private reflection, private confession of purification so that their motives would be pure And the next beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then, then my friends, we are prepared to hear the call of the next beatitude to be makers of a new peace. Only after having done all this work are we invited into the work of being peacemakers. Peacemakers of a lasting peace, not keepers of a status quo, not keepers of a negative peace, but makers of a constructive, positive peace that works for all, for all. And that work of changing the status quo, of inviting people in to the work of creating a more just tomorrow isn't always going to be popular. People might say bad things about you. They might do bad things against you. And in fact, the Beatitudes promises us it will happen. For after it says, blessed are the peacemakers, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let us follow in the footsteps of the text from the Amplified translation of one of these, which says, for being pure in hearts, the kind of pureness that might lead us to being makers of peace, the Amplified translation says that we should have, quote, integrity, moral courage, and godly character enough to act. So let us have integrity, moral courage, and godly character enough to act. And then we can express God's character. And then we can be makers of positive peace for all the children of God and be called the children of God. The
0: The New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay writes about hungering for justice in his book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Hungering and thirsting for justice, Macaulay says, is nothing less than the continued longing for God to come and set things right. Mourning is not enough. We must have a vision for something different. Justice is that difference. To hunger for justice is to hope that the things that cause us to mourn will not get the last word. Pastor Matt says that mourning, being open-hearted and listening to the stories from history and what's going around us here and now, are necessary. That we listen before we mourn, and we mourn before we hunger, and we hunger before we become makers of peace. Where are you today in that continuum? Are you listening? Are you mourning? Does it feel like you're doing all of it at once? Esau Macaulay writes that the church has a particular role in the work of justice and peacemaking. The church's witness, he writes, does not involve simply denouncing the excesses of both sides and making moral equivalencies. It involves calling injustice by its name. If the church is going to be on the side of peace in the United States, then there has to be an honest accounting of what this country has done and continues to do to black and brown people. Moderation, or the middle ground, is not always the loci of righteousness. I wonder not only where you are in this continuum of the Beatitudes that Pastor Matt talks about, but where your church is, too. Is your church listening? Does your congregation practice mourning injustice together? Are they comfortable with calling injustice by its name? Do your youth groups and Bible studies participate in making an honest accounting like Esau Macaulay says, of what this country has done and continues to do to black and brown people. Pastor Matt and I are both white people, which is kind of important to tell you when you're listening to us talk about black history. It's important for white people to teach and learn the often hidden history of our country's white supremacy. And at the same time, we know that we also need to learn from black storytellers and historians. If you're intrigued by this episode, we recommend that you seek out some black folks to learn from next. You could read Esau Macaulay's book, or listen to the podcast called Black History for White People, which Pastor Matt says informed his sermon. Or you could watch the documentary about the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that's called Just 13th. There are a million different entryways into learning, mourning, hungering for justice, and making peace. And I hope, Dunker Punks, that you'll choose to seek some out. Hey, thanks for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is one way people across the Brethren community work to call injustice by its name and hunger together for righteousness. This episode was created by Pastor Matt Riddle, Tyler North, and Ryan Domer, Editor Audio. And I'm Dana Cassell, one of your hosts. I use she, her pronouns. Jacob Kraus creates our music. Suzanne Lay manages production and communications. And we're really grateful for congregations and organizations that sponsor the show. Wichita First Church of the Brethren, Long Green Valley Church of the Brethren, Living Stream Church of the Brethren, Warrensburg Church of the Brethren, Beacon Heights Church of the Brethren, Arlington Church of the Brethren, and On Earth Peace. Hey, will you be attending annual conference this summer in Cincinnati? We are recruiting interviewers for live recordings of annual conference leadership. If you're interested, or, you know, a young adult who might be email us at DPP at arlingtoncob.org. Did Do you hear that list of congregations who are supporting the podcast? Isn't that fantastic? We're trying to recruit 20 congregations to put us in their budget. Churches, congregations are all about faith formation and putting the Dunker Punks podcast in their budget and supporting us in that way is an important way to support youth speaking out about following Jesus. We can amplify young voices of faith and give them opportunities to start conversations and make connections with things they care about. If your congregation is interested, you can email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org for more details. We even have this great informational packet with all you and your congregational leadership need to know about becoming a sponsor. We're also currently hiring for a communications intern position Current and recent secondary education students are eligible. It's a part-time, remote, paid position sponsored by On Earth Peace. You get to work with the fantastic non-hierarchical project team at the Dunker Punks podcast. We live across the country. You would help recruit new voices, get to know the young people who speak up on the show, and help us help young people make connections with the message. You'd get experience in interpersonal communications, project production, social media, content generation, fundraising, and graphic design. You've heard that email address before. Email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org if you're interested. And hey, there are a gazillion other ways to get involved with us. Send us your comments over email. Engage with us on social media at DunkerPunksPod. Create some art that was inspired by your favorite episode, we'd love to share it on our social media channels. You can sign up for our newsletter, or you can donate. Find all that on our homepage, org/dpp. We'd also love to hear your suggestions for people who might have audio contributions ideas, or if you have an idea for an episode or a series, let us know. Again, thanks for listening. Look out for our next episode going live on April 8th of this year. Until then, I hope you'll keep hungering and thirsting for justice, Dunker Punks.